Welcome. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Broken Colors. And basically uh, what that means, uh, do we have that slide with the, um, the painting there, Bobby? Perfect. So as you can see, this is a, this is a uh, painting that uses the style, Broken Color, it's a technique. And what it does is none of these brush strokes are actually connected. And yet our mind, our eyes look at it and we put together the pieces. So what we've been trying to do is take the lectionary, which is a very nerdy Bible book that kind of goes through the entirety of the scriptures in three years, um, and it pulls from different sections of the Bible, all hopefully to shed light on a certain thing. And so kind of the same way, the broken color is just it's all different brushstrokes trying to shed light on the same deal. And not only doing that, but uh, very boldly, we've also taken on the task of making sure that whatever happens in our newsly, or our newsly, our weekly news cycle makes it in, and we use use the lectionary text to kind of juxtapose or to support whatever's going on. And over the past couple weeks, in fact, right when we started um, this series, I got up and, you know, I was, I was thrilled to start something new and excited. Uh, but I said, look, unfortunately, if we're going to follow the news cycle, there's going to be some heavy stuff that we're going to have to talk about. It's just kind of a reality in 2018. It's a reality for anyone. But uh, honestly, what's been going on in the last couple weeks has been pretty, pretty heavy with uh, just with, with killings and, and shootings and, and violence and more violence and more violence. It just seems like that's the kind of stuff that grabs our attention. That's the kind of stuff that keeps happening. Uh, and so for the past two weeks, I've sermon prepped up to a point, up to like Saturday, and then something drastic will happen. I'll go, wait, I, oh shoot, like I really, I want to talk about this, but I don't have the time to do that. So what I want to do this morning is kind of take a break from just the whole uh, broken colors thing and just do a week specifically on the issue of violence and, and more than that uh, what we're going to talk about uh, is what Walter Wink as a theologian calls the myth of redemptive violence the myth of redemptive violence which just means if I hit you you're going to hit me back and then if you hit me back I'm going to hit you back harder you're going to hit me back harder I'm going to hit you back harder until oops one of us hit way too hard and we can't give up back up again that is redemptive violence and it's a myth it's not necessarily real. Violence only begets more violence, and we see that over and over and over again, and yet that's our go-to narrative. So what I want to try and uh, debunk is that uh, violence is the only way. In fact, we're going to talk about nonviolence, um, pacifism. We're going to talk about uh, the creative way of life that Jesus lived. Uh, and then we'll end, and this is probably the oddest thing I've ever combined, but we're going to do an electric chair versus a chapel, and the cookie monster will be involved. So let's pray that all of that goes well. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, thank you uh, just for this morning. Um, thank you uh, that, we have, um, that we have a mindset as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that, uh, that goes against uh, the actions of violence that are happening in the world and that we are actually called uh, to jump in head first in this. We're following you and we know your story, Lord, which is one that ended in the horrible violence, but then that wasn't the last word. So there's always something, Lord. And so we lean into the idea of this crazy religious word called redemption this morning. And I pray uh, that we could, we could define that because um, I think in that definition, we're going to find uh, healing for all this violence and all this hurt. Amen. Um, so if we're going to talk about violence, we need to talk about it's like better, if there's an evil twin, this is like the good twin, but uh, nonviolence. So not necessarily just pacifism, but nonviolence in general. Do you know that nonviolence as a term was not coined until 1915 to 1920? We can't really point it down, but it shows up in our dictionaries around that time. So you have an entire history of violence, even in our own tradition, you don't have to look for it, you just 
couple pages in, you got Cain and Abel, which is a murder story right from the very beginning. So there's this huge, huge history of violence, something we're very aware of, something we can define, something we have pinned down, but it took like almost like thousands of years to sort of figure out that there's this other thing called nonviolence. And in fact, it hasn't even celebrated its 100th official birthday yet. I mean, that's pretty crazy stuff. Nonviolence is just as much of an action as violence is. We're not talking about pacifism. And here's the deal, here's the word pacifism. Now, I think we too often look at, oh, yeah, that was right, Bobby, sorry. You can go to the next one. We look at it in this way, sort of like pacifism, like the complete avoidance of all violence, the complete like, I don't wanna go near that, I'm gonna ignore it. That's what pacifism is, right? But actual pacifism, real deal, nonviolent stuff, is an action. And it's a lot, it is a verb. It is jumping in head first and it's just as much of an action as violence is. The only problem is we kind of get caught up and we just go, okay, well you either, you're just gonna sit down and you're gonna take it or you're gonna fight back. And that's the option, there's, there's fight or flight, right? And we all know this, like if you're deer in the woods, you're there, you've got the gun, you're hunting, it's gonna look at you and it's gonna go, okay, I gotta fight this thing or I gotta run from this thing. Those are the two options. That's what kind of culture tells us, fight or flight. But when you look in the Jesus tradition, there's often a third way. Jesus always kind of finds this separate way through life and it's neither fight nor flight. And no one knew this better than Jesus. Jesus' entire life is made up of instances where they were trying to kill him. <laughs> from the very beginning of the story, when he's born, Herod is after him. He's after this little baby boy. So he's on the run from the very beginning. When Jesus preaches his first sermon, which is very enlightening and very helpful for young pastors like me, they try and kill him afterwards. So it's literally like they try and throw him off a cliff after his first sermon because it was so gutsy and different and crazy. So he knows what it is to be up against violence. He knows what it is to be up against oppression. He's under the Roman government, right? And there's violence happening all the way across the board. In the Roman world, you had this saying, it's no other name under heaven in which one can be saved than that of Caesar, right? We kind of know that the other way. There's no other name under heaven that one can be saved except for Jesus Christ, right? But that's not the common narrative at that time. That's a propaganda slave and servant. And so if you look at that, and you look at that propaganda and you go, there's no other name, what is Caesar doing that's saving you? Caesar has the most powerful army in all of the world, and what Caesar can do is oppress and, and cut down and destroy and, and, and grow based upon violence. That's the savior that Caesar is. And so Jesus, in a very interesting, like third way approach, decides to move in a different direction, not fight, because he knows if we fight this Roman army, we're gonna get destroyed. And he says that several times in scripture. He's like, that's not the way forward. You guys are gonna get crushed. And in fact, he like prophesies about it like several times. Like this, this is all gonna come way, way down. So don't fight. And it's not flight. It's like not, don't do anything. You need to absolutely be involved, but you need to do it in creative, fun, different ways. This is how he was raised, and this is the environment uh, that we see. There's a nonviolence to Jesus that is subversive and creative and fun. It's a creative way of life. And too often, we don't actually talk about the way we live, which is the vast junk of what we have written down in Scripture. We often talk about uh, he arrives on the scene, he's born, and then he dies, and then he rises again. And we miss this very creative way of living and this very creative way of actually like fighting against the powers that be that navigates us through the whole story of the gospel. And actually, it's an exact opposition to our origin story. So what's really interesting about the Judaic faith and our faith 
is that we are one of the few major world religions that does not start out with an act of violence. So even in Jesus' day with the Greeks and the Romans, in Greek and Roman mythology, in their god world, you have a god that kills another god, the gods are all really angry at each other and they fight each other, and whoever wins creates all of humanity. Whoever wins by killing another god, the bloodshed, the blood pours out, and out of that bloodshed we have humanity. But what's super, super interesting about the Judaic faith and the Christian faith is that in our faith, we don't start out with gods that are angry at each other. We start out with a loving God who literally breathes life into the dirt. Our story is a generous story. It's about life. It's about not taking that life from someone else. It's about understanding how precious life is, and that we are the very living breath of God and a vessel for that movement. That's insanity. And that's the way Jesus understood it, and that's the way Jesus moved this thing forward. But we can take our religious identity, which over half of Americans claim to be their own, this Jesus tradition, right? But it's almost in direct opposition from the way that we actually began as a country. How did we begin? Revolt, war, right? Violence. And it was, I mean, it needed to happen, some could argue, but that's good, all well and good, we're not going to tackle that subject today. But that's the narrative we have, and the narrative grows. If we can be the biggest superpower in the world, all we need to do is create the biggest army, and then we can control everything. The narrative just repeats itself, and this is the myth of redemptive violence. So how do we hold these two, an American identity and this Jesus identity? There's a third way. But the myth of redemptive violence and all of that hurt is a really, really broken story. And if we continue to lean into it, more stuff is going to get broken. I just got a, um, a new bicycle uh, for my birthday. I've had three bikes stolen in Santa Monica, so this one's a real roll of the <laughs> dice. Um, but I got a bike for my birthday, and, uh, and I went to go pick it up, and it's at this really kind of hipster fun shop in, in Venice, and I felt really uncool walking in there. And, and I walk in, and I, I pick out the bike. Um, they're like, cool, we'll have that ready for you. In a couple days, I come back, and I pick up the bike, and and it looks awesome. Like, it's just the coolest looking bike I've ever owned. And I hop on the bike, and I notice something weird right away, but I'm like, nope, this is the bike. I mean, this is a cool bike, and I'm in a really cool store, so I'm not going to make a scene and go like, Bleh. So I ride the bike out, and I ride it home. And I, I've been riding it for a couple weeks now, and I just started to notice, like, my back is just killing me. And this is, like, my primary mode. Like, Chelsea and I have one car. She drives to work, and so I'm on foot, or I'm birding, or I'm riding my bike almost everywhere. Uh, and I just began to notice, like, oh, I am in a lot of pain. What is going on? And then I noticed when I get on the bike, this is what's causing the pain. So I rode the bike back to the bike shop, and I was just like, all right, guys, I don't know what's going on, but, like, I don't think I may need to return this. I'm not sure. It's just, it's not for me. Maybe it's the wrong shape. And he's like, oh, dude. And the guy, you know, just, like, the coolest bike owner in the whole world, he, like, looks at me. He's like, oh, man, oh, why were you riding it like that? I was like, well, easy. Didn't come here to get shamed. And he's like, why, why would you ride it like that? And I was like, I just thought that's the way that the bike was. Like, I thought that's the way it works. He's like, oh, no, no, no. This seat is way too high, man. You'd be, you would have been killing yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. That's cool. I knew that. So, so he fixed the bike for me, and we moved on. Uh, but I think the same with this myth of redemptive violence. Like, why would, you, why would we be riding it like this? Why are we riding around something that's literally hurting us? There's a better way. There's a more creative way. We can fix this if we so choose, but it's going to take throwing our whole life into this story. 
we don't have to keep going in the same rhythm. Some of our favorite people in life, the people that just like are electric and just light you on fire because they're so like, they're so fun, they're so charismatic, they're so different. A lot of those people look at the rules that we've made up in life and look around and go like, no wait, these are just kind of human rules that some human just as like broken as me made. And a lot of these rules are made to be broken. For instance, uh, I don't know if you guys, like for like two years, the incline was shut down, the um, California incline here in Santa Monica. And so in our neighborhood to get to PCH, uh, we would have to go down this little Chautauqua road, which is like through this little canyon neighborhood and everything. And it was like a kind of a, a huge workaround to the incline, um, but it, it was a mess. Like you would sit in your car for like 10 minutes at this one light and it took you like 20 minutes just to get to PCH from like the bluffs. It was, it was a broken system. And it's a very, very nice affluent neighborhood. Now, there's a turnoff if you're going down this little road, down to PCH, there's this light here, and then there's this light here. And then there's a turnoff right here that somewhere along the line, uh, there were these traffic safety cones that lined the entire turnoff. So this entire street looked like it had been shut down. But here's the thing. I'm sitting in my car one day, and I'm looking at this, and I'm going like, oh, well, that, that must be like, you know, the city set that up so that cars wouldn't go through in traffic and everything. And then I start looking around as I'm passing it every day, getting more and more angry at this infuriating red light, which is stealing minutes of my life. I look and I go, there's no sort of like signage here whatsoever. Like there's nothing saying that the city actually did this. There's nothing. So, you, you know, th these thoughts are just kind of brewing in your head until one day I'm sitting in the car and about four cars ahead of me as we're sitting waiting for the light. I just see a very fed up guy in a Jaguar and he shuts the door and he just walks over to the plastic cones and he starts moving the plastic cones and just throwing them. And then he gets back in his car and he turns right onto that street and he goes down. And then once he did that, we all were like, yep, down. And we all went down the street. But see, there's a creative way of doing that. Some guy looked at those and he says, this is, this is just, it was probably a very wealthy person that was like, I don't want these cars on my street. So they went on Amazon and bought some plastic cones and then just put them up. It's genius, right? They made up a rule, but then this other person looked at it and he said, wait, there's no authority to this rule. This piece of plastic has no authority over me and I'm going to move them and free us all. And good Lord, I wanted to find him and shake his hand. I was like, that was, you just freed my life, man. I mean, it was huge, right? Look at guys like Elon Musk, right? We, we love these people because they look at problems in a totally different way. They're like, NASA's not gonna go up to space anymore, not gonna go to the moon. Okay, we'll do it, we'll send passengers. We'll send a Tesla up there. Like, he's insane. You want a big bullet train? Let's, let's create a boring company in which I'll go underground and literally create a bullet train and I'm gonna do all of this privately. He's a genius, but we call people like this geniuses not because they have greater intelligence or because they, they, they probably are very intelligent and very smart, but we give that like everyone's an Einstein if they're a genius. And the truth is, a lot of the people that we call geniuses are simply looking at the rules in a different way. They're going, there has to be a more creative solution. We are in an age of explosive genius right now. The stuff that our phones can do, we're just figuring all this out. And so with apps and new companies and tech startups and all that kind of stuff, genius is getting thrown around a lot and I actually love it. I think we should be throwing around that term like crazy because all genius really is, is looking at a problem and saying the same dead way is not working. We have to figure out a new way. How many of you are still calling taxis, right? Things are changing. There's a new way. And so we need to kind of step into this tradition as Christians and go like, we need to look at that and take it for us. Because we're joining in a long tradition of Jesus looking at things in creative ways. One of my favorite shows uh, is a show called Nathan For You. Has anyone heard of Nathan For You? 
It's on Comedy Central. It got canceled, so thanks for watching it. Um, but it was basically uh, this show where this comedian um, named Nathan would come into businesses that were failing, and then he would use a comedic approach to save that business and then create a huge marketing campaign behind it. So one of them was a car mechanic, and he couldn't get people to come to his, uh, to his business, and, and they were failing. And, and Nathan looks around, and he goes, well, what's the major problem with all car mechanics? And the guy goes, I don't know. And then he's like, you wouldn't know you're one of them. But he goes, uh, it's that we don't trust you guys. Like, we, we pull our car in, and we don't know if you're going to totally, like, 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 mess around with our car and overcharge us. So what he did is he put in lie detectors. And so when you would come in for your car, the guy would have to sit on a lie detector test and literally tell you everything that he did and the right cost and everything like that. And if he passed, there you go. If he didn't, your car thing was free. It's genius, right? There's a, there's a local uh, coffee shop in one of the episodes that's failing because a Starbucks had moved in across the street. So he comes in and he figures out a legal loophole in parody law, which is what it's called, where if you put the word dumb in front of anything, Technically, you can use all the rest of it. So he just put dumb in front of Starbucks and created the coffee shop across the street and called it dumb Starbucks. And everything looked just like it. And the marketing thing went through the roof, it went viral, and that coffee shop blew up, right? And what I love about all of these instances and all of these episodes is that this is third way thinking. This is a guy who understands that like, if we can use humor to our advantage, powers like that, things that change the mood in the room, then we can actually get a whole lot done. Let me show you one of the funniest things Jesus ever said. It's also the most political statement he ever did. That's the main scripture there, Bobby. Beautiful. Okay, um, so this is Jesus' third way approach. We talked a little bit about this before. I'm going to go through it, but the new twist on this is you need to pay attention to how funny this would have been. So you have heard it said uh, that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this is redemptive violence. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is the way that we should do it. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So Bobby, can we go back to the first slide there? Because we'll just kind of unpack this. So first of all, he's setting this up as the myth of redemptive violence. He's saying, here's the way that we live our lives right now. If someone hits you, you hit them back. But he's saying, I think that there's a different way. And it doesn't involve resisting. And so this is what's so crazy. And we, we look at this, and this, this passage has caused so much harm. So much harm in domestic relationships, so much harm just in abuse, because that turn the other cheek idea is awful. It's awful. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And this is what he was talking about. In the Roman Empire, if you hit someone, there was a charge, a money charge, like a slap on the wrist, like here's a fine, if you hit someone with a closed fist. And not only that, if you hit someone with your right hand with a closed fist, because your left hand in that culture was used for unclean acts. I'm going to let your imagination flourish there, but the left hand was not something you wanted to touch. The right hand, if you hit someone with that right hand with a closed fist, there was a charge for it, and you were initiating a fight with an equal. So if you hit someone with a closed fist, you are initiating a fight with someone equal. Now, if you hit someone with your left hand, you would hit them with the back of your hand, an open hand, and it wouldn't just be a hit. It would be a direct insult to that person's humanity because it would say, I'm going to hit you, and even beyond that, you're not even dignified as a human being when I strike you with my left hand. Now, think about someone hitting you, right, with an open hand, backhanded. This was reserved for slaves. This was reserved for just awful, awful things. If you were hit in this direction across the cheek and you turned this cheek, 
Jesus says if you turn the other cheek, all of a sudden, if they want to hit you again, they have to hit you with their right hand. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> they have to hit you with the right hand. So in a way, you just flipped the power structure on its head. You said, you just, you didn't even give me the dignity of a human being. Now, if you want to hit me again, you will hit me again as a human, and you will pay the fine. That's an interesting idea. Now, this is not a permanent solution. What Jesus is doing here is, is initiating ideas that would change the game right in the immediate now. So it's not like you could just keep going around like this and people wouldn't catch on. What he's saying is, hey, think of this creatively. How can you take the power at B, this, this huge amount of energy, it's like a Taekwondo flip, and use that energy to your advantage? How do you take all of the robbing of humanity and all of the awfulness that they just did and turn it into them having to see you as a human being and publicly displaying that? And the next one is probably my favorite one for that public display. So what he says is, uh, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, this sounds just like, okay, someone wants to sue me, then I'm gonna give them more than they deserve, and somehow that's the Christian idea. Here to tell you, that's not the Christian idea. That isn't pacifism, that's just lying over and taking it. What this is, is saying that if you are sued, which was a common occurrence, because everyone was suing everyone, like you would get sued three times a week. I mean, just lawsuit, 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 lawsuit. Because this was a really, really poor community because they're being triple taxed and they didn't have anything. And so their go-to would be to sue. And especially the Romans, they would be suing the Jewish people all over the place for land rights, for all this kind of stuff. So when they get into the courtroom, what Jesus is saying is, because I know you guys are in a, like, a financial situation, that you're going to come to that courtroom and likely you're going to have nothing to be sued for. Right? So he's saying when you go into the courtroom and they want to take your, your shirt the last thing you have, then hand over your coat as well. And I don't know if you guys know this, but a little nerdiness here. The way people used to dress in that day was they would have like a long tunic, which would be your shirt, and then you would have a coat over that, and that would be all that you would wear. So what he's saying here is that if someone sues you for your shirt, don't try and cover yourself up. You hand over that bad boy too, and you stand naked in the court. And what's genius about this is that in that day, nudity and shame that were very much related was not the same way as we view it, right? If you are running naked in public, the shame is on you, right? And well done. The shame is on you. But in that culture, just to behold nudity was shameful. It would make you ritually unclean. It was an awful Thing. There's an instance of, uh, in the Bible where Noah, after the ark, he gets drunk and he's naked and his sons come and they see him naked and because of that shame, they have to go, and, and they have to go away for nights in the wilderness to make up for this act of seeing their father naked. Lots of therapy involved in that. But this is what nudity did and so what Jesus is saying is they want to take that, you give them everything and then you put the shame on them. Now again, is it going to work for everyone to get naked in a courtroom? No. This might work one time, but it's going to be legendary, right? There, people are going to talk all about this because it's flipping everything upside down. And then finally, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, if you're on a Roman highway, much like our highway, there would be these mile markers. I'm not sure if it was an actual mile. It's just our translation. But there were markers to mark these designated things. And, and in the Roman government, you as a soldier could pick out anyone to carry your pack for one mile. One mile. Now, what we view this as is go the extra mile is just work harder. Just work harder. Keep moving. Keep going. No, it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. 
What Jesus is saying is after that one mile, that's all they can legally take you. And so they could get in trouble if you go for further than a mile. They could be reprimanded. They could be, like, they could be punished because you've carried the pack further than that. So just imagine this scene. First of all, you're the one being oppressed and you've got to carry this for a mile. And then you walk up to that mile marker and you keep going and the Roman soldier has to go, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, give me, give me back my pack, right? You have a total power flip. Now you're the one that can get in trouble. And Jesus wasn't making this stuff up. This is a real rabbinical tradition. Um, the rabbis, this is a great one, the rabbis would say, uh, if your neighbor calls you and ask, put a saddle on your back. I mean, that's, it, it, that is kind of the way that they would say. They would go like, listen, you can flip the powers it be. And Jesus knew this because the revolts that are going on at this time, there's this group called the Zealots, and they keep trying to get Rome out using violence. The whole place is politically charged. In fact, people are ready for Jesus to take up the sword, and that's the way that he's going to be the Messiah. That's the way that he's going to be the Redeemer. When is this uprising coming? What are we going to do? But these uprisings never worked. It was like an awful, very dark version of Tom and Jerry. Like, we know what's going to happen, right? The mouse is going to win, always, every time. And in this story, Rome is the mouse and, and the Jewish people are the cat, which is strange, the cat is bigger. I get it, it's not the best metaphor, but we're gonna roll with it. That's what's going on. It's never going to work. You're never going to beat them and they're just gonna keep crushing you. And in 70 AD, it happens in the biggest way possible where they not only come through and crush everyone, but they rip that temple stone from stone. The myth of redemptive violence is not working out for them. But one thing did, one thing did. The one revolt that they actually won happened in the year 26 CE, and it's when Pilate brought in the Roman standards. Now, the Roman standards would have been hoisted up on these big, huge things, and they would have taken them right outside the temple on this hill that overlooked the temple, and they would have stuck it in the ground, and it would have been the images of their gods, their emperor, their empire. And from the temple, you would look up and you would see the images of a different god. And in the Jewish tradition, a graven image is a big deal. This was not going to stand. So some of the religious leaders of the day, the very creative types, went and in a classic move of nonviolence, of peaceful protest, of resistance, they decided to go prostrate right in front of Pilate's door. Thousands of them just went and they laid down in front. And then when the Romans, when he ordered the Roman soldiers to go and surround them, they then put out their necks as if to say, go ahead. And when Pilate saw that kind of religious zeal, he said, okay, take all the standards down. We can't have this. This is too much. This will work. And they won. So what Jesus is doing is trying to create an environment where we creatively deal with these issues and we use things like our bodies, our physical selves, humor, tears, emotion, things that we can actually change the game off. We're going to change this whole violence thing. We need to get much, much more creative. And I think humor is a huge key in this. If you can make someone laugh, you can unlock a whole lot. There's a disarming factor to humor. It's just that we don't, we don't give it enough credence. That's like a novel thing, right? That's like a, ch a cheap thing. Like no comedy is going to win the best movie of the year, the Oscars, right? We just, we don't give it that kind of credence when, in fact, I think it's one of the most powerful tools we have, period. My little brother is the funniest person that I know. Um, he does improv uh, professionally now, and he's just this, like, just, uh, he's quick. 
And he's always been quicker than me, and it's bugged me, and I've never admitted that publicly. Hopefully he doesn't <laughs> listen to this podcast, but he's really, really fast. Uh, when he was four, and this is the moment I was like, oh, shoot, and I'm four years older than him. I'm double his age at this point. Uh, we're in the car uh, with our cousins, and we're, we're racing, you know, really safe stuff. But in the car, we're racing to get to this restaurant uh, to try and beat the other family members, right? And we're, we're going we're gonna to race and get there. And, uh, and, and they're, they're beating us for a while, and then we pull out in front of them. And Brendan had carried a banana peel from inside the house, from a banana that he had eaten earlier, just because, this is the way his mind operates, he rolls down the window to the car, and he throws the banana peel out, he rolls the window back up, and he declares, that'll slow them down. <laughs> I mean, that, at that moment, I was like, this kid, it's gonna be next level for the rest of my life. And it's continued in that way. Like, all we do when we get together is laugh. We just laugh, and we laugh, and we laugh. Uh, we're each other's best friends, and that's, that's our mode of communication. It's ragging on each other, it's laughing, it's, it's, it's unlocking something that's within us. And he's radically good at it. Uh, and this year, and I've told this story before, uh, Brendan almost passed away. So Brendan got in a motorcycle accident, um, and he basically hit the tail end of a fender, and he flew catty corner across the street uh, and landed in such a way that uh, his helmet was on, and that was good, but it ruptured his aorta. Um, and when we got him to the hospital, the doctors said, we don't usually operate on this kind of a thing because most people die at the scene. Um, and it just hit me like a ton of, I remember like everything going like white and just this ringing in my ear and I had to sit down. It was hilarious. My dad did the exact same thing and my mom was just sitting there like standing with them talking, very rationally calm. It's just not the same mindset. Uh, but Brendan's about to roll in the surgery. I spent two nights with him in the ICU. I haven't like showered. I haven't really slept. You're getting woken up every 15 minutes because they're changing something on his, his wires. And, uh, and he's about to roll in. And I remember it's like, okay, this is the moment that like, it was like that movie moment that I need to watch what I'm going to say. Uh, this might be the last time I talk to my brother. And in a very real way, this might be the last words that I get to say to him. And so I come up and I, I come with a really, really deep, like, Brendan, I love you. You're going to get through this. I'm praying for you. I know God's going to move. and I know you're going to be okay. I'm just filling with tears. And then he takes my hand and he responds with, Cookie Monster. And I go, what? And he goes, tell my tale. And then he's wheeled off. Like, it's, it was the most dramatic, amazing thing. Tell my tale. I'm like, what the heck was that? Why did he say Cookie Monster? And then I was like, well, he's always joking. That was just a really bad joke. It failed. Didn't get it. They then hand over all of his items to me. Uh, and including the broken helmet that he landed upon. And it just so happens that Brendan flew 45 miles in the air, catty corner from one corner to the other, wearing this helmet right here. <laughs> this cookie monster helmet right here was what almost killed him. And then if we could just go to that next slide, just picture something flying through the air <laughs> looking like that when the eyewitnesses had to call the police. They went, I, I'm not sure what I saw. <laughs> But it looked an awful lot like this. And when I got that helmet in my hands, I broke down in the weirdest mix of absolute hysterical laughter and absolute crying. It unlocked something in me that went, no, okay, wait. Brennan's going to be okay. Brennan's going to be okay because he had a cookie monster helmet on and he was brave enough to make his last words to me a joke, which, again, like, tell my tale. Like, I would have had to tell that story to everyone. Well, how did it get? Well, <laughs> so... That's what humor can do in a situation. It can change the temperature in the room. Humor is like the release valve in our hearts. So are tears. They're very similar in that way. I was laughing and I was crying. And sometimes we can laugh so hard that we cry. And sometimes we can cry so hard we start laughing. They're somehow very, very interconnected. You ever been in a situation where you're trying to hold it all in and you're trying to act all cool and 
I got this, but you really, really, really just want to cry. And then someone who cares about you deeply, or maybe it's just a total stranger, comes and they embrace you and they give you a hug and you just let it rip. We've all had that moment where you, that just that embrace, that hold, releases, and then in a nonverbal, primal, soul level, we let it out. We let it out. And we heal in that outlet. We heal when we let it out. See, if we want to fix this violence problem, number one, we need to start letting it all out. And we need to be the kind of stranger that's going to come up and embrace someone else. We need to be embracing more. We need to be laughing more. We need to be crying more. We need to be hugging more. We need to run at this full pace ahead. There can be no thoughts and prayers, guys. When these things happen and they're like, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with, no, 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 no. Stop doing that. Get outside and run towards someone. Get outside and journey towards each other. We have to get involved in this stuff. We have to put our whole selves in. And this is what we know at our primal level because all of you, when you were children, learned a dance called the hokey pokey. The hokey pokey goes like this. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, put your right hand in, and you shake it all about. Now, it's the first part of the dance, right? And I think that's where we're all stuck, certainly in American evangelicalism, when it comes to this issue of violence. We are putting just one hand in the pool and shaking things up a bit. But how does the dance end? How does the song end? It's that you throw your whole self in, and you throw your whole self out, and you shake it all about. It's going to take throwing our whole selves in, and for some of us, it's going to take taking our whole selves out. That's what needs to happen. I'm going to give you two examples of what it really, truly looks like to jump in fully in this idea of violence. And one's a personal story, and the other one is just a story that I read that is just profound. First one, uh, we can take the cookie monster off. I think, we, I think he's had his day. <laughs> and that one, we can wait for that one, Bobby. Sorry. Want to go back? Um, perfect. So, uh, Jane Post is a very close family friend uh, of my family's, and, and uh, I grew up playing with her sons uh, when we lived in uh, Sacramento, California. They later relocated to Vegas and then re relocated like 15 other times before them. We always kept in contact. My parents were really good friends with them. Um, and she's now a pastor, and she became a pastor of this church in Vegas. And those same sons were playing outside uh, one day that I used to play with, and uh, one of the younger son runs into the street to retrieve a ball, um, and a drunk driver, a teenager, turns the corner, strikes this little boy, uh, and he loses his life instantly on the scene. Jane's son. And they're devastated by this. And this, this news rocks everyone, like the whole community. They had a huge church in, in Las Vegas, and it was just like everyone was mourning, and everyone was super, super just like, what, why, God, why? Why this, per this little life? Why would you take that? Why could this happen? And more than that, it's just like, like we knew this child. This was an unbelievable loss for this family. And so there's one of two things you can do in this situation. You can press charges when you get that person in jail, perhaps even on charges of murder, manslaughter, whatever it is. But Jane reached out to this teenage boy uh, that had taken the life of her young boy, and she said, she reached out, she visited him in the jail, and she said, you know, I'm a Christian, uh, and in my tradition, in the Jesus that I follow, uh, we're really big on grace and forgiveness. And so what I want to do is I want you to know that you are completely forgiven and that I'm not going to hold anything against you. And in fact, even more than that, 
I lost a son, but I want to gain a son now. So after all this is over, I want you to come live with me. And they adopted this teenager, and he came and he lived with them, and he's now a part of their family. That's a third-way approach to an act of violence that should not have happened, that should not have occurred. And the redemptive part of that in our sort of narrative would be strike back, get them. They, they took that life from you. You take that life from them. But James' response is no. No, no, no. We're here to give life, not to take it. Second story. Um, it's about a guy named Billy Neal Moore. Billy Neal Moore is a fascinating fascinating study. He, uh, he was a Vietnam vet, and he'd come back um, from, from wartime. Um, he had a daughter uh, and a, an ex-wife, and uh, he was trying to support his daughter and his ex-wife, but also support his drinking habit, support drug habit that he had. Uh, and his friend comes to him, and he says, hey, I know uh, a guy who keeps $30,000 in his house, and I know when he comes and goes, and we can get in there, no trouble, just take the cash and get out. And so they begin drinking, and they, they fit, like the story goes, they finished a, an entire handle of Jack Daniels. They drank beer. They drank wine, just like all these three things. And then they go out loaded, and they're ready to go. And they pop in the door, and there is an elderly gentleman at the age of about 75. And he runs into the other room because he realizes these are two men in ski masks with guns. And he pulls out his own gun, and he fires one shot off. And then Billy fires at him, and his bullet hits. The man goes down and loses his life. And so Billy is put in uh, jail. He's acquitted. And then he's, he's not acquitted. I'm sorry. He's, he's, he's uh, found guilty of murder. And he's uh, on death row. They're like, you will get the death penalty for this. It's Georgia, remember? You will get the death penalty. And so he stays on death row for about 15 years because, good Lord, we really need to pull that out, right? We need to stretch that time period out. And in the course of that time, a pastor visits him regularly would drive an hour and a half just to come and see Billy. And he would, he would sit with him and he would say, hey, Billy, I just want you to let you know, like, this, have you ever thought about this Jesus tradition? And he joked with the pastor and he said, I'm on death row, it's a little late for that. And I said, no, 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 it's never too late. Like, you can jump into this right away. And so he, he begins thinking about this and, you know, like, mulling over the story of the gospel and what that could mean for him. And then it works. Something clicked in him and he went, yes, yes, I need Jesus. And so he, he tells the pastor, can you baptize me? And the baptize, Billy is a huge man, uh, and this was a Southern Baptist pastor, so he didn't believe in sprinkling. He had to go all the way under to be safe. So they had to find a bathtub, and they still couldn't fit him in there, so they had to, like, bend him in and then shove him down, and then, boom, he's baptized. And with this, Billy gets this huge amount of zeal and realizes, I need to seek forgiveness for all of the hurt that I caused. So he calls his ex-wife, and he apologizes. She says, oh, my God, who is this? Of course I forgive you. Calls his daughter, I'm so sorry that I did this to you. Dad, of course I forgive you. And then he calls the family of the man that he took the life. And their response is nothing. They simply say thank you and they hang up. And then the next day they show up at the prison. The whole family. Extended relatives, everything. And say, listen, Billy, we're Christians and we believe in forgiveness. And so we want to let you know we forgive you. And not only did they just forgive him, but they began to fight for his freedom. They said he's a changed man. He's not the same man that he was. He deserves another trial. He deserves parole. He deserves to be off death row. And they go on this massive campaign that even includes getting in touch with Mother Teresa to call the prison to get Billy out. 
And seven hours before Billy's supposed to be put to death, they take him out of that room and say, you're no longer on death row. You've been given a trial. And he gets on that trial, and they give him 25 years. They say, you've got to be in here for 25 years. And after 17 years on good behavior, they let him out. And Billy now works in the same church, that pastor who baptized him, as another minister, and is close with that family that he took the life of. You see, that changed a violent person. That love actually shifted things around. We cannot keep responding with violence when violence enters the scene. I discovered something very, very scary this week as I was searching images. Um, we have that. This is a, this is a uh, electric chair, and this is the room in which you would view an execution. This is where Billy was headed. So if you look at an electric chair, it's remarkable. I don't know if you see that, but the shape of it is an awful lot like a cross, right? And you have all of these chairs lined up in a row, staring down at this cross. Now, this is the chapel in Cedar sinai where I prayed for my brother when he was in the hospital. They look remarkably similar, don't they? And I think the real question we have to ask ourselves is what room are we choosing to worship in? What space are you going to choose to come to the cross at? Is it the space with an electric chair in it where we respond with violence to violence? Or is it the space in a church, in a community, in, in love? Where we say, no, there's a third way, there's a different way to respond to this violence in the world and is not to beget more violence. Let's, uh, let's pray together.